0: Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. You're listening to the WE Podcast, and I'm your host, Sarah Menares. I believe that we all need a space to speak our authentic truth, as well as a space to hear the truths of real and vulnerable people, so that we can better understand that we are not alone. Hearing the experiences of others encourages us to step into the light in our own lives, It is through owning our stories and learning to speak our truth that we are able to grow and rise above the challenges we face and step into the full power of all we were created to be. You will hear many topics discussed in this space with people from all over the world. We hope that you feel welcomed into a community of growth and that this space will invite you to uncover the absolute greatness that is already inside of you. Oh, and don't forget, check out all the We Podcast episodes as well as the Spot blog over at thewespot.com. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Hey girl, it's me. You're listening to episode number 64, Feeling, Healing, and Leaning In. In this episode, I get to have a conversation with Amy Norris. Amy moved from the East Coast in her early 20s to attend the Institute of Art in Denver. Little did she know how much she would love the area. She has been married to her husband for almost 20 years, and together they are raising two bold and courageous teenagers in Loveland, Colorado. She works for a warm-hearted nonprofit and has been teaching yoga for over 10 years. Amy recently returned to her passion of writing, which fills her soul and gives her a voice to share her story through an authentic and raw heart. Amy is a contributing writer for the we Spot blog, so you'll have to check out all of her articles over there. She hopes to inspire and enrich your life in this incredible community of women and remind you that you are so loved, always enough, and oh so worthy in every way. We get to have a very raw and open conversation about Amy's early trauma of finding her father dead in her backyard from suicide. She talks about how it affected her in her early life And what she finally did to learn to feel her feelings, heal, and really lean into the areas that were scary to face. I really value Amy's ability to be so vulnerable and allow us into this space with her. I know you're really going to love this episode. There's so much to take away. So let's dive in. Here we go. Here is my interview with Amy. Welcome to this episode of the WE Podcast. I'm very excited to have Amy Norris here with me today. I think Amy is absolutely amazing and I know that you will all think so too. She's one of my very favorite people and I love about her that she's just willing to go anywhere with the vulnerability and dive in. And so (laughs) we'll see where this leads us today. So thank you for being here,
1: Amy. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yay. Thanks for saying yes. So I usually like to start out with kind of talking a little bit about how we know each other and we connected through Heather, right? Mm -hmm. Heather Williams. Mm -hmm. And you started coming to the meetups, mm-hmm. is that where I first met you? Yeah. Yeah. And then got to know each other a little bit better. And now you're a writer, a contributing writer for the WeSpot blog and a leader in the community. And yeah, it's just kind
1: of progressed from there. Yay. <laughs> Yay. Yeah, it's been a great connection. I love
0: that. Yeah. 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 Well, if you haven't read any of Amy's pieces on the we Spot blog, you definitely have to go over and check those out because they're all super amazing. So Amy, I would love for you to talk to our audience, kind of let them know where your story starts. I know that there's History of trauma and a lot that has gone on that has led you to where
1: you are today. Yeah, I'll just dive right in. So, I was born and raised on the East Coast and had a mom and a dad, loving family, brother. And uh, when I turned 14, you know, felt like I had a great, loving, normal childhood. And when I turned 14, I found my dad dead in our backyard. He committed suicide. It rocked my world. In ways that I had no idea probably until, gosh, maybe four years ago that I even let that pain in. So wow. I've been used to living very numbed out and disconnected and i didn't really know it and until recently and there's lots of things along that journey too i did to cope that were unhealthy i don't know if you want me to go into those things or
0: yeah definitely i want to go back a little bit though i mean i've heard the the part of your story with finding your dad and can't even imagine how gosh impactful and hard that would be but i hadn't ever heard you say that everything seemed totally fine and normal beforehand. So that's really interesting. I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Like there was no warning signs, there was no red flags or anything like that for you prior to 14.
1: As far as my dad committing suicide, you mean, or just my childhood? Yeah, no, we didn't have any signs. It, It happened really quickly. He had surgery and some elective surgery and. Yeah, he just, he he went into some depression. We weren't sure if it was a mix of the meds he was taking, but we definitely noticed a shift in his his demeanor. He was definitely more agitated, irritated, sad. He would kind of, his anger was definitely heightened, more short-tempered. And within about a six-week period from him being on medication, to when he killed himself. Yeah, there was definitely a shift in his attitude, but that was in the eighties and, you know, there was no awareness, nothing, you know, and as a kid, you know, I wasn't privy to any of that information. I had no idea he was seeing a psychiatrist or, you know, any of that stuff and getting help for, you know, the way he was feeling, he just wasn't feeling normal. And, you know, that was kind of between my mom and him. So. So yeah, as a kid, from my perspective, I just saw a change in his, probably his anger, which he never was just an angry guy ever, just super go with the flow. And yeah, so that was probably for me at 14, the biggest red flag I saw. I didn't even know what suicide was, you know, that Just mm-hmm. wasn't even, I mean, that never came into my thought pattern at that age and, you know, in the eighties. It was something people did when they were crazy and they were in the loony bin or, you know, we were just totally seen as, you know, you were going to be in a straitjacket if you ever did something like that. It was so far removed from anything.
0: Yeah. Just such a lack of awareness about it back then. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you were the one who found him. Yes. Was there other people home or were you home alone
1: or? Yeah, it was Thanksgiving and we got off a day or two early from school. So I was riding the bus home with one of my good friends and I was gonna go to her house after school and you had to have a note from your parents to get off at a friend's bus stop. And so she kept asking and asking and something inside me said, no, we can't go to your house. We have to go to my house. It was the weirdest feeling. So we talked the bus driver into letting her come to my house and we got there and it was rainy and my dad's truck was there, but I couldn't find him anywhere. And you know, we just went on telling jokes about, you know, creepy jokes about where my dad could be and just talking about, you know, best friend stuff and didn't even pay any attention to it. So and then my mom called and sounded super concerned and asked, you know, hey, I'm a little concerned. Your dad missed a doctor's appointment today and he never misses an appointment. Can you go? see if maybe you can find him maybe he fell in the shed or because he'd had some you know corrective leg surgery and was on crutches and and I was like sure I was a little creeped out you know at that moment so yeah my best friend was with me and we walked out of the house and we were a little nervous and scared and we lived on like an acre and we had an outsider dog was in a dog pen and he was just barking and barking I never looked over at him and i I was just concerned about walking into the shed. So we approached the shed and I just remember feeling super nervous and opening the door and, and he was not there. And I was so relieved. I told my friend, I'm like, all right, you stay behind. I'm going to go run and tell my mom, you know, we didn't find him and she locked the shed up. And as I turned the corner, there he was in my, uh, the pen of my dog, the kid, that's why I was barking so much. Cause my dad was right there. Mm. Mm. yeah yeah oh my gosh absolutely devastating it was crushing yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah I don't even have the words for it still right. to this day. yeah yeah and so I didn't know your friend was with you she was I remember going to tell my mom and she said she heard me scream all the way from outside and So, yeah, and then after that, the paramedics came and the police came. It was just super invasive because they, you know, they weren't sure what had happened. I had no idea what had happened. They thought maybe it was a homicide or, you know, so I had to show the police around our house and, you know, it was during the day. So most people were working and, you know, we didn't have a lot of neighbors. We lived in a really rural area. So, so my friend and I were alone for a bit and then. People started to trickle in, and then the cops came, and we had to shove them around. And I remember taking them through the house, and we went into my dad's room, and there was pill bottles in his bathroom sink, and I thought, why are there empty pill bottles everywhere? So, he had you know, OD'd on on some pills and there was like, there was antifreeze on our counter. Like things my it's weird how your brain just flashes back. Like I remember when we walked home before any of this happened, I saw antifreeze on our counter and it was open and there was like a little cup there and thought it was super weird. So my dad had, you know, definitely ingested that as well. Yeah. So. Wow. It was awful.
0: Yeah, I know. Well, I don't know, but I can imagine. So how do you move forward from that at 14?
1: Mm, you don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Honestly, like it's taken me a long time to reflect on it. You don't move on, not at 14. Mm-hmm. You just live, you know, you try and make your life as normal. And in my experience anyway, you know. I pretended a lot and I had no idea how I was feeling, you know, I was, I definitely could connect with, you know, sadness and those normal feelings you feel at 14, but yeah, I just couldn't wrap my head around any of it. So, Mm -hmm. so I didn't want to feel, so I didn't.
0: Yeah. I know some of these stories, which... (laughs) <laughs> i like, uh, it's so hard for me to imagine now, you know, knowing you, but so in your teen years, you turned pretty self-destructive and rebellious and.
1: I was very rebellious and it took a couple years, you know, a lot of things changed over time. My mom, when my mom started dating, you know, she wasn't at his home as much and I had a lot more freedom and was in counseling, but I still had no idea. You know, I was just trying to be a normal teenager. I was the girl whose dad committed suicide and that's not a great label to have. You know, people are always staring and whispering and looking at you weird, but I surrounded myself with a lot of friends and I didn't understand what was going on inside my body. So I started, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol probably by the time I was 15. So yeah, maybe a year later, I guess. Mm-hmm. I drank a lot. My best friend and I, not the one that was with me when we found my dad, but she was my best friend since I was four. And we got into a lot of trouble. She didn't have a good home life. And my home life was definitely not great at that, you know, time. Mm-hmm. I was a mess. So yeah, we partied a lot. We skipped school. We Ran away for 17 days, got arrested. (laughs) (laughs) I did awful. My grades were horrible. I snuck out all the time. Mm -hmm. Just huge red flags, you know? Yeah. My poor mom. (laughs) But, you know, just so many changes, too.
0: Yeah. So at one point, you just decided you were out, and you and your friend took off for 17 days.
1: Yeah. We did not like our lives. We hated our, we hated being home. I wasn't getting along with my mom and she wasn't getting along with her dad. We like came up with this big plan of how cool it would be to run away. So we talked about it and we came up with a lot of plans and this one sounded really good. And we're like, all right, we'll get jobs. We'll get money. We'll just go. We did. So we had asked these two guys that we were friends with if they wanted to run away with us. And they were like, no, you're crazy. So they didn't think we would do it. We followed through on it and we had no money. So I stole money from my mom's bank account and about $1,500. And we headed to New York and packed everything up. We had blankets, clothes in the back of my girlfriend's Honda Civic hatchback <laughs> and <laughs> got all our cigarettes and smoked and listened to great music. And we thought we were done. This is the life. We're going to go get a job. We're going to get an apartment. You know, I was 15. She was 16. Yeah. I was going to ask how old you were. <laughs> I mean, when I look back on it, it was so crazy. I mean, we were so confident and sure of ourselves. Mm-hmm. We weren't to anything stand in our way. So how far did you make it? Gosh, I think we went to like 13 different states, I want to say. We went all up and down the east, and then we went, I think, as far over as Ohio. Oh, wow. She was a super sports fan, so she wanted to go see like lots of football stadiums. And so we, you know, we did that, and we stayed in a hotel every three days. We slept in the car a lot. We stayed at some real sleazy places. We stayed at some nice places. (laughs) You know, we ate well. I mean, I look back on it. I don't even know how people let these two minors, like, get a hotel room or right. any yeah. of that stuff.
0: Yeah. I guess money talks, huh? You had the money yeah. for it, so.
1: We were <laughs> convincing. Yeah. <laughs> <That>. <laughs> <laughs> and we were good liars. So lying was definitely a strength of ours at that point, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's interesting because I think we're kind of chuckling about it. And you can look back now and be like, holy crap, I can't believe I did that. (laughs) And the reality of that time, too, on a more like serious note, is that you were having all of those behaviors because there was a lot of pain going on for you. Definitely. Definitely
1: hmm
0: Trying to outrun the pain or that numbing that you were talking about earlier.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just kept going and it got more destructive. After that? Yeah. I drank a lot at that age. Then I started getting into drugs and that definitely would numb me out a lot. And I liked it because I basically felt great, you know, mm-hmm. all sense of reality you know yeah. being high all the time on something. Yeah, so I functioned really well like that. I thought I did. What do you mean? <laughs> oh no, you know, I thought I had it all under control. I was like, oh this feels great. I can, you know, whatever. I don't have to feel, I, you know, it just numbed me out and blocked out all the feelings and things I wasn't ready to cope with yet. Mhm. I guess. Yeah.
0: I mean, I'm sure there's a lot in between the story, but when did you get to a place, do you think, where you were ready to stop blocking out the feelings? 42.
1: 42? Yep. When I turned
0: 42, probably. So you you had a lot of life, I'm sure, before (laughs) between 15, 14, and 42. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I did have a lot of life. I went from one coping mechanism to the other. I traded in drugs and alcohol to an eating disorder for 20 years. So Mm. I learned how to manage and function and was very controlling and rigid, you know, in my eating disorder. And I just kind of let that control my life and, you know, continue to block things out. And so it wasn't until I was 42 that I was tired of crying in my closet every day or crying in the shower, you know, Mm -hmm. And, and not like knowing what was wrong with me or thinking, gosh, what is wrong with me? Or just feeling definitely not appearing out of control on the outside. I was such a good actress and had it all together on the outside, but inside I was just a mess. I was exhausted. I couldn't do it anymore. And yeah, I needed help and I, Honestly, just surrendered and was like, okay, somebody help me. Finally, I was ready to ask for help. Mm, That's huge. Yeah. So,
0: all along this way, though, you had gotten married, you had kids, right? Like, where was that in your timeline?
1: I was 27 when I got married. I moved to at 24, I think I was 23 or just 24. I was a wreck. And so I moved. I was a runner, just I had a runner personality. If, if it was too much, I would run away from it. You know, mm-hmm. if I didn't like my relationship, I would leave it. If I didn't like a friendship or I, there was, you know, challenge, I didn't deal with it. I just ran. I was tired of being at home. I was tired of dealing with myself. So I just thought if I, you know, left and went to a different part of the country, it would magically solve everything. So I told my mom and my family that I was going to go to photography school, you know, because I like photography, but it was just super random, honestly. <laughs> and so I talked myself into believing that's what I really wanted to do. And I moved out here to Colorado and got an apartment by myself near college. I went to the Institute of Art. I didn't finish. I came out here and lived downtown and I just spiraled downward. Deeper and deeper into my de- eating disorder, and and I didn't have to tell anybody because nobody knew me. It was a mm-hmm. huge secret, and so I did have an aunt out here, so that was like my only connection. And then my husband, Joe. He wasn't my husband at the time. I had worked with him for like three years before we were really good friends. Before I moved out here, and then he came to visit me the first Christmas I was here, and and then packed up everything he owned in his truck and drove out here, and we started a relationship. So it was cool. Yeah. I had no idea. I didn't tell him anything. About? About my eating disorder. You know, Mm -hmm. I was just, yeah, a mess and hiding everything. And so, yeah, so then we lived in Denver. I went to school and I eventually couldn't handle it. And so I quit school and then we just continued to move. Like we got married 27 Had two kids, two awesome kids who are teenagers now. You know, we just kept moving further north until we reside here in in Loveland now.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: So, at any point, did you let him know about your eating
1: disorder or did he find out? Yeah, I did tell him early on, maybe a year or so after he moved here. I said I needed full time treatment. I needed to move into a facility probably so I could have 24 hour care and and you know he didn't understand i didn't really understand i just it was the first time i had really asked for help like uh, this is like a thing i think that this is what i need to do and and for whatever reason we decided he didn't really know what to do and i think his fears took over and he was like well gosh if you go away how are we going to afford this or how are we going to do that how are we going to make this work yeah let me back up no i told him a couple years when after he moved out here and so he knew and then when our kids were young is when I said I, I think I need like I need care so mm-hmm. that's when he was like what well, who's going to take care of the kids how are we going to do this we don't you know how are we going to be supported what are we going to say what are we going to tell people I let myself be unvalidated and was like oh yeah you're right yeah you're probably right yeah I don't need help I can handle this on my own Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got this. I got it. You're right. This is stupid. So, gosh, I was probably when maybe that was like 10 years ago, probably. Hmm.
0: So, what happened at 42? I just couldn't stand myself anymore.
1: I honestly couldn't look myself in the mirror anymore and pretend one more day that I was happy internally. I was happy with everything. Externally, I was happy with, of course, my kids, my husband, my friends, my life. I just I hated myself. Mm -hmm. Like hated myself. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror anymore. And yeah, I was tired of hating myself. I'd had enough of my own BS, Mm -hmm. honestly.
0: What do you think you hated about yourself?
1: I think I had a lot of shame. And so I hated at the time thought I hated myself for being so, so shameful. I just felt like I was hiding everything that I, I just wasn't being me. I was showing us somebody different on the outside, like Mm -hmm. someone that had it all together, someone who was perfect, someone who was just very surface level. Like I, you know, Mm -hmm. Totally was expected
0: because I've been in that exact same place. So yes,
1: I played the perfect role and, and that was far from the truth. That's why it took me so long and I was so exhausted that I know now it was so, and now I realize, gosh, if I just would have said, I need help, here's what's going on. Like that's a lot easier than to stuff everything down for 10 years and, you know, yeah. Mm -hmm. but I wasn't capable. So yeah, I hated all the
0: shame that I felt. So what did you do then when you finally said you needed help and you reached out and you let somebody know what was going on?
1: Yeah, I was at my kitchen table. The kids are in school. Joe was home and I said, I can't do this anymore. Like I need help this time. And he didn't question it. So yeah, I did some research, you know, about um, around the area, what, you know, whatever it took is what we were going to do. And so I just researched some outpatient eating disorder places in the area found, you know, went around to Denver and here and some places, some other places out of state and decided what level of support I felt like I needed. And then we just went from there. I kind of just let it, I was just so committed to just throwing my hands up and surrendering that nothing, I wouldn't take no for an answer. I knew when I found the place I needed to be, we would just figure it out and make it work. And you did. And I did. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So... I know a little bit of your story and that you also had a close friend pass away and that
1: that maybe there was mm. something with that. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Heather, she was a mom of four. She was a force. I had never like, her energy was like no other. I remember meeting her and being around her and thinking she was just so real and she said what she thought she did what she meant and that was foreign to me and so I was just a drawn to her she had been battling cancer for years and I met her sort of on like recovery remission side and then it came back and then I went to the hospital she was on oxygen I watched her say goodbye to her four girls and I remember being in that hospital room and thinking, what am I doing? Like, you know, she's saying goodbye to her girls, not knowing if she's going to live or die. And here I am so wrapped up in myself and worried about what I look like on the outside and not letting people in on the inside and really knowing who I really am. Like, I thought that, God, I'm wasting my life. Like, I can't do this anymore. You know, I want to be like Heather. I want to show up. I want to be me. That was it. I didn't want to leave this life, like not discovering who I really was. Mm, Yeah.
0: That's huge. Yeah. When was that in your decision
1: to get help? It was right around the same time I had been thinking about it and thinking about it. And then when I was in the hospital room, I I think that's what sealed the deal. I was like, I got to take action. Like, I can't just think about it. I have to do something.
0: So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. How old are you now? 46. Okay. <laughs> so four years ago, this was four years ago.
1: 2015 is when I got help.
0: Yeah. So I briefly knew Heather and I know she was quite the person. <laughs> It's awesome that you got to have that relationship and experience with her. And I think so often for a lot of us, it takes these huge things to kind of shake us and wake us up and say, It's time for you to live. It's time for you to be who you are. And I guess part of my thought, because yeah, I had a different situation, but You know, there's these moments in my life where I call them like my little wake up moments where I just wake up a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Gosh, how much I want for like my daughter to not wait until she's in her 40s to have these moments, you know what I mean? Or to have this experience of, okay, I'm serious now and I'm really going to start living authentically.
1: Yeah, definitely yeah and I guess I thought I was like living authentically mm, prior to that mm-hmm I was doing the best I could. I mean, I was still me, but I had definitely these shameful secrets
0: mm. so tell us the difference in the two then like because my guess is that a lot of people are still living in a place where maybe they think they're living authentically so mm-hmm. help us do you know what I mean like different yeah between those two?
1: I guess when I thought I was living authentically, I talked myself into believing it. (laughs) We all have a different story in our heads of the way we think we are versus the way we are, what we're actually doing. I think I was convinced that I was going to live my life this way forever. I didn't think I was going to get to the point of like, actually getting some treatment and get some help. So I had convinced myself, this is just going to be my life. And so that was like my authentic truth, if that makes any sense.
0: Mm -hmm. So how are you
1: living differently now? My values are different. I'm not motivated externally by things. I'm motivated internally. I'm not afraid to be messy I'm not afraid to be imperfect anymore. I'm not afraid to sit on the couch and watch TV if I'm tired. And I'm not afraid to eat two pieces of cake if I want them. Yeah, I'm not afraid to call a friend and cry on the phone now. And I'm not afraid to, you know, jump for joy and make a fool of myself if that's how I'm feeling. I'm just not afraid of me anymore. Hmm. That's powerful.
0: What a place of freedom,
1: really you know, it's a work in progress every day.
0: What I know about you as a writer, you're not afraid to be vulnerable. You're not afraid. It's hard for me to imagine you then because I only have known you, you know, in the last four years. Yeah. Uh, It's hard for me to imagine an Amy who was blocking out all of the feelings and, and numbing because now you're so vulnerable and you're so willing to go to the places that most people aren't.
1: Yeah.
0: How does it feel to be in this space now where you don't hold back, where you are vulnerable, where you are living in that
1: way? It feels good. It didn't at first. I mean, it was hard. You know, I went to an eating disorder outpatient clinic and I was like the most intense five months of my life. But, you know, and, and still, I think only maybe five people still know that. I have to release the shame around that, you know, being 42 and being trapped in an eating disorder. That's like, you should get over it, girl. But that's what I needed. So I did, but yeah. So I think it feels good. It's just a learned thing. I just think it feels good to break down the walls I've built around myself, especially around my heart. I've been trying to protect my heart since I was 14 to experience that kind of pain. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I mean, I built an ironclad wall around myself. And lived a very protected life. I protected myself from pain my whole life. Yeah. So now I know how to manage pain. Like I know how to feel it now and I'm not afraid of it. Hmm. So that feels really good. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think most people are afraid of pain.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It stinks. Yeah for me, it had to happen. Yeah. It's a lot of growth and I see life and feel life, you know, through my heart now and through different lenses for sure.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us now more about what you do, because I know you are a yoga teacher and you're teaching people to lean in to things and which is amazing. And so, what role does that play in your life now? And how has that helped you in your healing process?
1: Um, yeah, it's definitely changed me as a yoga teacher, teaching people how to lean in. I think you know, I work for a nonprofit. That's what I do during the day, and the woman I support teaches people how to live from their heart. So, honestly, when I started working for her it was a tremendous gift just starting my own recovery and what I was going through I was in a community of people who lived through their heart and were super vulnerable and it was just such a good community and energy for me to be around and it allowed me to practice doing the same thing in my own life I got into teaching yoga because I just wanted to give that gift to women like it's okay to like yourself and it's okay to mess up and fall and and it's okay to love yourself. Like it's not selfish. I think we get confused by that in our society, you know, mm-hmm. just because you love yourself doesn't mean you always like yourself, but you, know, you can love all the parts you don't like to. Mm-hmm. So I think just by writing and just doing my own work, like it's hard work. Mm-hmm. But I, I think there's really nothing special I'm doing. I'm just being me and I'm leading with my own heart. And so that has made a huge difference
0: Yeah, in my life. Mm-hmm. So good. And so scary to so many people to go to that place. But I think so many people like, that's what they want. They're just afraid to take that step to say, yeah, I need help. I need to go to a treatment facility. I need to intervene. I need, that's the hardest most scary step
1: probably. Yeah. I know for me, it was asking for help. I don't know why for me, it's super hard to do. I'm learning it. I guess it's hard for others too. I thought it was just, you know, I think you just get trapped in thinking you're the only one who feels this way, but yeah, I just never knew how to ask for help. And I thought asking for help was weak for a long time. I thought being strong was being able to do it all on your own and being strong is being able to answer your questions today and, you know, be honest and showing up every day and revealing your shames. Like that's what strength is to me.
0: Mm-hmm. Your perspective on strength totally changed.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And asking for help was so foreign to me. And it still is. I'm still not really good at asking for it, but I push myself out of my comfort zone and do it as much as I can.
0: Yeah. We can hold each other accountable. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not good at it either. (laughs) Yes, yeah, I still don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's vulnerable, and same. I think we connect so well because we have a lot of similarities in our story and the way we kind of have viewed the world and. Asking for help means like, it meant like you suck as a person. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You have to let people in if you ask for help. And, and some days I still, I don't want to let people in to Mm -hmm. what's really going on inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't want to admit some of the things I struggle with. And if I ask for help, then I have to admit that I'm struggling. Yeah. And that's hard. It is
0: hard. But the other side of that, I think is so worth it. And when you've experienced it and know it, that it's worth it to do the hard
1: things. Definitely. Most definitely.
0: Yeah. I'm going to ask you my questions because I'm excited to hear what you have to say. So my first one is, is what has been the most vital to your growth?
1: Most vital to my growth, self-awareness, learning about myself and forgiving myself or feeling the bad things that nobody wants to feel or for making a mistake or forgiving myself for not always showing up as the best version of myself, you know, keeping secrets or feeling shameful about things, forgiving myself and reminding myself that I'm human and that's a hit. Yeah, <laughs> you know I'm not perfect. That is no longer an expectation of mine. It's huge. I think you wrote an article about forgiveness, didn't you? In the wee spot. Not specific. I have talked about it, but yeah, I'm thinking about writing one. Actually. Well, there we go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'll link a couple of your articles in the show notes, too, so people can find them easier. But all right, so second question is is what do you want to make sure people know walking away from this interview today? What do you want to leave them with or ha- make sure they know?
1: I want everyone to know how worthy they are just because they're born. Like I know that sounds so simple, but it isn't, And I didn't know that about myself. Hmm. When do
0: you think you realize that,
1: gosh, maybe just a couple years ago,
0: What do you think are the repercussions of not
1: knowing that? A lot of self-hate. Thank you. Yeah. You are welcome. <laughs> so all you worthy listeners out there? Uh, yeah. I, I hope it. that you you are so loved and so valued and so appreciated.
0: Yeah. Soak that one in. All right. So Amy, let our listeners know how they can find you, how they can connect with you moving forward.
1: Well, you can connect with me via the WeSpot you know, or my writing. And I also teach yoga at Loveland Core Yoga and Fitness in downtown Loveland. If you ever want to come, come practice with me. Yeah. I need to come yeah. to one of your classes still. <laughs> time. <laughs> and who knows maybe uh yeah one day I'll who knows I have a lot of fire in my belly right now so but Ooh. right now that's how you can reach me well, I love <laughs> it that sounds exciting uh,
0: <laughs> yeah and Facebook you're on Facebook
1: Instagram. on Facebook
0: yeah I'm not on Instagram I'm only on oh Facebook. yeah you're not on Instagram yeah all right well thank you for showing up for us today and for being so vulnerable and open with your story. I think that it's not only healing for us to, to speak our truth and to tell our story, but just so powerful and helpful for everybody else to be able to hear your story. I think it, it makes us all better and it helps us all heal in our own experiences as well. Mm, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you. No, I appreciate you. (laughs) Thank you. All right, my friends, what an awesome interview. We absolutely believe in the power of our stories. And we are so very grateful to our guests who have the courage to speak their truth and share their heart experiences and light with all of us. If you want more of the Wee Podcast, make sure you head over to thewespot.com where you can find all of our episodes as well as the Wee Spot blog. The Wee Spot is your go-to spot for growth, connection, authenticity, and encouragement. You can also find us on social media. Head over to the we Spot Facebook and Instagram pages and get plugged in. You can also find me, Sarah Moneris, on my personal Facebook and Instagram pages as well. If you love the We Podcast, we would be thrilled for you to rate the podcast and write us a review. We want as many people as possible to be lifted up in growth and get connected with our community. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes dropping every single week. We can't wait to see you over on social media. Thank you for being here today. It means a lot to us. Remember, your story makes you who you are. Speak your truth, grow constantly, rise above, and always know you are not on this journey alone. See you next time.